So last week, we finished up, and Joseph was just getting ready to be taken out of Pharaoh's dungeon to have his dream interpreted, which is where we pick up this week. And one of the things that I said was that Joseph is involved with three sets of two dreams. Okay? And I don't understand what that means. And I said, but I will. And so on Aish this week, Ari Khan gave me a big clue and a big part of it. And so I want to talk about, probably spend a good hour talking about Joseph and his dreams and what's going on there. Each of the patriarchs goes through a pattern. And what we see is the pattern is what happens to Abraham. Isaac is something slightly different than what happens to Jacob. Okay? And the reason Isaac is different is because Isaac is the only one of the patriarchs that never leaves the land. Okay? So he's in the land for his entire sojourn. So some of the things that happened to Abraham and to Jacob and to Joseph don't happen to Isaac. Now, if you look at Abraham, Abraham also has two dreams. Right? And Isaac doesn't have any dreams. And then Jacob has two dreams. And then Joseph has two dreams. We find that Abraham is saved by a dream. Because remember when he goes down into Egypt and he tells Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister. Pharaoh has a dream. Right? All right. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm Abel Millick. He does. Remember, he does it twice. He goes and tells Pharaoh that she's his, his sister. Then he comes up and he does the same thing again with Abel Millick, where he tells Abel Millick that she's his sister. Abel Millick then has a dream from God, and that dream from God says, uh, "You're in big trouble, boy." Because you just took that man's wife. And, you know, they have the deal where Abimelech negotiates with God and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. I thought she was his sister. And so forth. So Abraham gets saved by his dream. And then we find later that Jacob also gets saved by a dream. Because remember when Jacob is fleeing from Laban's and heading back with all of his wives and all of his children and all of his cattle and stuff and Laban is chasing after him and they catch up and Laban says I was really going to get you but I had a dream and God says don't mess with that boy Joseph by the way is also saved by a dream isn't he because he's in prison isn't he and he's languishing there in the jug And Pharaoh has the dream, and the dream doesn't particularly concern Joseph as it did in the case of Abraham. But it is the reason why Joseph gets pulled up out of the jug. Right? So what I'm suggesting to you is there's a pattern here. And there's, there's something going on. Now, let's 
look at the dreams, and I'm going to look at Pharaoh's dreams today in Makitz, and then we're going to sort of backtrack and, and expand them. But, I'm, but first off, understand that we've got a pattern here that is going with the patriarchs, and all of this is of basically God's design. So now we have, in, in Genesis 41, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after him, after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted, by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now, we're of course going to see this exact same thing happen again in several centuries when Daniel has the same experience with Nebuchadnezzar, right? And you have basically a king has a dream, calls in all of his wise men, and nobody can answer it, and so we have the, the Hebrew captive, in both cases is a Hebrew captive, right? Joseph is a captive who was sold into slavery. Daniel is a captive because he was captured when Nebuchadnezzar grabbed off Jerusalem. All right, so now we have these two dreams. Now, there are at least three ways to look at these two dreams. There are probably more than that, but three that I know of. We look at them from our perspective and knowing the answer, and we say... What was wrong with these guys? I mean, any fool can see what's going on here. I mean, you may not get the seven years, you know, seven cows or seven years or seven stalks or seven years, but you can clearly, you know, see that there's going to be a time of plenty or at least a time of relative good, but there is a bad time coming up. Okay? It, it, you might not pick up the seven fat years, but you should certainly be able to pick up the seven lean years, right? You understand what I'm saying? So if you're going along and, and, and everything is fine and you know, you're not having bumper crops but nobody's starving, you know, it's just sort of trundling along, you could read it as, okay, things are going to sort of keep going the way they are for a while and then it's going to get really bad. I mean, that seems obvious to us, right? Well, except that we're not looking at it from the perspective of an Egyptian. In the first place, the symbols are different to an Egyptian than they are to us. Okay, because remember, what does the river represent to the Egyptians? Or it's a god. It's a god. Who is Pharaoh to the Egyptians? He's a god. What are animals, livestock, to the Egyptians? Gods. So, if you come at it from the perspective of an Egyptian, you have got a very different symbol set then and, and you know dreams are highly symbolic, right? And this dream is coming to Pharaoh, right? Who is an Egyptian, 
it is being interpreted by other Egyptians who look upon Pharaoh and cows and the river and so forth the way I just described it. And so if you're looking at a completely different symbol set than what we see because we have the answer here in Scripture, it is not at all a given that you're going to be able to understand this dream. Since Well, yeah, I mean, I understand you're being facetious. I know you're being facetious. But, again, understand the mindset of the people who are getting this dream. And so what they see is they see the river, which is a god. It's given to Pharaoh, who is a god. And then coming out of the river, you see these seven gaunt, bad-looking cows and... Just like in modern-day India, cows are revered. And oh, by the way, that's why it is an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews. Because you remember when Joseph gets ready to do lunch with his brothers, what does he say to his servant? Slaughter an animal. Slaughter an animal. And the Egyptians are saying, Ew. We ain't going to sit down and eat with you. Okay? It's, it, and again, you, I'm sure you've all had experience with rabid vegetarians. And, you know, I... No, I, I'm, I'm very serious. I, I can remember when I was working at CU, uh, we had a, a party, and I cooked up gumbo and, and drove four vegetarians out of the building because they couldn't stand the smell of the meat cooking. And I, I'm literally... I'm not... I'm not being hyperbolic at all. And vegetarians said, I've got to leave. I can't take this anymore. And they were out of there. So the idea that the Egyptians would find it abominable to eat with the Hebrews is not at all. Yeah? I don't know the answer to that question was, are the Egyptians vegetarians? And the answer is, I don't know. What I do know is that we have in, for example, India and a number of Eastern religions that are vegetarian because they don't believe it's ethical to eat meat. And furthermore, the, the animals in their scheme of things are reincarnated something else and so they don't eat them. Furthermore, if you are a herdsman, there are things that you've got to do with your animals in order to keep them herded up that are an abomination to someone who reveres animals as deities. So, for example, you don't go out and castrate your deities. I, I, again, I'm very serious. I mean, everybody's sort of snickering here. But the things that you have to do to husband animals involve coercion. And if you look at those animals as deities, somebody who makes his living by essentially coercing animals is not somebody that you're going to want to invite to dinner, and it's not somebody that you're going to want to have living in your neighborhood, and it's not somebody that you're going to want to go to dinner with. Okay? So this idea of the separation between the Hebrews and the Egyptians and the separation is talked of a couple of times here in this 
part of Genesis. It's always because the Egyptians regard the Hebrew practices as abominable. It's not the other way around. In other words, the Hebrews don't look at the pagan Egyptians and say, man, we just can't eat your lentils. I mean, you know, that, that isn't what happens. It's the other way around. The Egyptians can't take it because I would suggest to you that if they are not vegetarian, and they may or may not be, Scripture silent, and I don't know, but Scripture is not silent on the fact that they worshipped bulls and sheep and so forth because we have lots of examples where those are deities. So if you're dealing with a people who by their very livelihood coerce your gods, it is going to be an uncomfortable relationship. Okay? So, anyway, what I'm saying is that from the Egyptian perspective, this dream doesn't mean anything like what it means to us. Because they have a completely different understanding of what the symbols mean. Let's go to the second set of symbols. The second set of symbols are the ones that Joseph has imposed on this dream in Pharaoh's presence. So what Joseph says is, what's going to happen here, O king, is there's going to be seven years of great plenty, followed by seven years of lean, and the lean are going to be so bad that it's going to swallow up the seven plentiful years and you won't even remember them. What I will tell you is that is a neutral economic interpretation of the dream. Okay? In other words, that doesn't touch on anybody's symbol system. It doesn't touch on the Egyptian symbol system, and it doesn't touch on the Hebrew symbol system. It is neutral. It's also pragmatic because that's what's going to happen, and, and things will unfold because of that interpretation. But understand that it's not an interpretation that the Egyptian symbols accommodate, and it's not an interpretation that the Hebrew symbols accommodate. Okay, so that takes us to the last set of symbols, which is the Hebrew or biblical symbols. Okay? And in order to do that, let's start by going back to the first set of dreams. Okay? And, of course, you all know that the first set of dreams are in Genesis 15. And that's the visions or the dreams that Abraham had. Okay? And what I'm going to suggest to you is that these six dreams that Joseph is involved with flow out of the two dreams that Abraham had. And they use biblical symbols instead of Egyptian symbols. Okay? So, going back to Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. So this is a dream or a vision. Maybe he may have been up and vertical, but it's clearly a vision. It's not something that he's seeing in the flesh. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. All right, first thing is, O Lord God, what will you give me? The promise of God is your reward will be very great, right? And, God, and Abraham looks back at God in his vision and says, What can you give me that will compensate for not having a son? In other words, I'm already a rich man. I'm already very wealthy. So, God... What is this great reward that you're going to give me that is 
in some way going to compensate for the fact that I'm childless. You understand the question? Okay. Three. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and remember the stars, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, still still the same vision, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down from the carcasses, Abram drove them away. All right, so that's the first dream. Okay, He has this vision, he has this conversation with God, and he is still alive, alert, awake, and and so forth, because he has to go out and get some animals and arrange the sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. So that's the first vision. And the first vision promises him offspring and land. Okay? So the first vision promises him offspring and land. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Ah, so now we're going from wakening into sleeping, and the conversation here will be, if you will, the second dream. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Okay? So the second dream then confirms the covenant of land and also gives him a prophecy that says what is going to happen to him and his people. And what I will gently suggest to you is this dream is known to Joseph. This information is known to Joseph. This is one of the stories, if you will, that is circulating in Jacob's camp around his city. So, what I'm suggesting to you is, first off, that Joseph is looking at his dreams in light of Abraham's dream. And as he is giving Pharaoh this economic interpretation of his two visions, what he's doing is he is deliberately suppressing his understanding of the dreams in light of Abraham's dream. 
And he's also then bypassing the Egyptian symbol set. So you've got two sets of three sets of symbols here. You've got the biblical symbols, you've got the economic symbols, and you've got the Egyptian symbols. And the one that gets the ink here in, in Genesis 41 is the economic set of symbols, which is neutral with respect to the other two sets. And, and I will gently suggest to you that he does this on purpose just to keep himself out of trouble. He may or may not know what the Egyptian set is. I mean, I, I, I don't know. He's been in Egypt for 20 years, so he certainly has got some idea of what's going on with Egyptian religion and so forth. Probably, in fact, surely far better than we do from 3,000 years removed. So he avoids those, and he also invo- avoids what he knows from his lineage. All right, so now we need to unpack some of the symbols. Right, the first one is meat, animals, right? And remember we said in the Egyptian economy, those represent deities. What do they represent in the Hebrew economy? We know what they rec- represent economically. What do they represent to the Hebrews? Sacrifices. Yes. Yes. What else do they represent? Wealth. Wealth. In other words, they represent wealth, plenty, abundance, all those kinds of things. And they also represent sacrifice or the means by which you may draw near to God. Let's go back to Joseph's first set of dreams. Genesis 37 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down, bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right. I'm not going to ask you rhetorical questions because I never saw it either. Um, but this dream is really strange. First strange thing about this dream, the first dream, is the Israelites are not farmers. They're herdsmen. Right? So what are they doing binding sheaves? And again, if you look at the pattern of the patriarchs, What you find is that only one of the patriarchs engaged in agriculture. Who was that? Isaac. Again, the one who didn't leave the land. Remember, he, after the incident with his wife and Abimelech, settled outside of Gerar, and he planted and he reaped a hundredfold, remember? That's the only mention of agriculture among the patriarchs. And indeed, all of their wealth and everything about them was nomadic and herding. 
They were herdsmen. They were not farmers. So this idea of binding sheaves doesn't fit with their lifestyle. Because remember, Joseph gets sent out to go look for his brothers in Hebron. They don't own their own land. Remember, they're living down in Hebron, but they've got to go clear up past Shechem to find pasture for their sheep. So they are wandering and pasturing their sheep. They don't own any land. They don't do agriculture. Let's go back to Abraham. What is Abraham promised? Land. And when you have your own land, what do you do with it? Then you can farm it, can't you? Okay. Then you can farm it. Once you have land that belongs to you, you can farm it. But if you're a nomadic herdsman, you don't. You move from place to place and graze your animals where you can find pasturage. Right? So this dream, as Larry was saying, it certainly could apply to his tenure in Egypt when, in fact, grain is going to be the commodity that the whole world comes to Egypt for. He's going to be the master of that commodity. You could certainly look at it that way. But if you take it back to Abraham's dream, where Abraham has promised land, then this idea of having sheaves and his brothers having sheaves means that they are in the land, they own the land, they have their own place, and they can do agriculture. Well, let's look at the second dream. And that's the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars will bow down before it. Where do we see stars before? Huh? Abraham's dream, don't we? Abraham is told by God, step outside and look up. And if you can count the stars, so shall your descendants be. Right? So the previous mention of stars in a dream has to do with descendants, progeny. So this is, again, a prophetic dream of Israel becoming a nation. Okay? And, oh, by the way, that nation is going to be, under the Messiah, the son of Joseph. And so, from Joseph's perspective, the two dreams that he's got now, that he gave to his brothers, his brothers see them strictly in terms of family politics. You're going to rule over us, huh? Joseph sees them in terms of long-range prophecy, which basically says Israel is going to receive what God promised to Abraham, which is land and seed, progeny. Okay, And that's still yet in the future, because remember, Joseph knows his dreams, right? So far, so good? All right, now let's move forward to the next set of dreams, which is the baker and the sommelier. Sommelier? Sommelier. I don't know. I'm not French. Sommelier. Whatever. (laughs) All right, so now we have these two prisoners. So the cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. 
in the three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I have been stolen from the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should put me in the pit. And the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Okay, so we have two dreams again, right? Notice that we have grain again, don't we? Grain's involved here, right? That's what a baker works with. It's wheat, grain, makes bread. Now we have a new element introduced, which is wine. Now, both bread and wine are the product of microbial action on something that over a period of time improves it. Right? Yeah. So you have yeast plus grape juice and time, assuming you have a good yeast and so forth, will give you something better than just grape juice. Similarly, yeast plus flour and water over a period of time will give you something better, which is bread. Right? And what Joseph is seeing is one of these fermentation processes is going to go to completion, the other one is not. Right? In other words, one is going to be restored and go on, the other one is going to be cut off. So, let's look at bread. Where's the first mention of bread? This is 3.17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till the return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The first mention of bread is, a, is spoken of as part of the punishment, or part of the consequence, if you will, for having fallen. So, if we look upon bread, and, and look, we got the, the, the sommelier, sommelier, whatever you call him, the wine steward and the baker, the bread is cut off. And the wine goes forward. So what do we do with that? And, and, and oh, by the way, don't we also have grain in Pharaoh's dream? So, starting with Joseph's dream, you've got sheaves, grain, then you've got the baker, grain, then you've got Pharaoh with his seven stalks of wheat, grain. You begin to see a trend here. 
But if you go back, what grain or bread is associated with is the fall and hard labor. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So bread is associated with hard labor, hardship, being expelled from the garden, if you will. All sorts of bad stuff is associated with bread. Now, don't get me wrong. I like bread, and I'm sure most of you do, and it's, and it's good food. But that wasn't the original people chow. The original people chow was the fruit of the trees. Okay. And, and as I say, this is the first mention of bread. And now we have this bread or grain running through all of these dreams. Go ahead. What's, do you have there what the first mention of wine is? I don't, but I can certainly find it. Is that Noah after he finds something? I, would, I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. I'm just trying to figure out because we've got bread wine. Mm-hmm. We've got Melchizedek bread wine. I, I think. bread wine. Of course, later on, Christ's bread wine. We've got all this stuff. I'm just wondering how that. And I think and it does. The here as well, who is the one that goes forward. Yes. Yeah, so. and, and, and Noah is the one that goes forward. Yeah, good, good, good insight. Yep, Genesis nine, nine twenty one. Mm-hmm. The first mention of wine. Yeah, very good, very good. So what you have, take off on what Ray just said. The first mention of wine is Genesis nine twenty one, where Noah became drunk, <laughs> which not you know, not a good advertisement. But but understand who Noah is or was. Noah is the one who, after the old order was destroyed, goes forward from there. The one that survives and goes forward. Okay? And, oh, by the way, isn't that what happened in the two dreams with the baker and the wine steward? The wine goes forward, the bread is cut off. Alright? Now, the article I read by uh, Eric Kahn on Aish, which is where I, I got a lot of this line of thought. At this point, he says something that I'm taking with a grain of salt at this point, or a grain of yeast. His comment is that bread represents the fall and the expulsion. And I agree with that. I think that's correct. And what he says is wine, there's a, there are a number of people who think that the forbidden fruit was the grape. Okay? There are also people who think it was a fig. I mean, nobody knows. But the thing about wine is that fermented wine can be an agent of confusion. Anybody have too much fermented wine occasionally and and become a bit confused? Sure. Sure. It's an agent of confusion. And what the butler's job was is basically on Pharaoh's behalf to separate or differentiate between good wine and bad wine. I mean, that was his job. If, If he didn't show up with 
the best wine, he was in trouble. In fact, he got himself in trouble for some reason. We don't know how. But part of his job was to make sure that the stuff that Pharaoh drank was the good stuff. You know, none of this torpedo alcohol that got filtered through a loaf of bread. Not for Pharaoh. Okay? Just the good stuff. And so what Khan's thought is, is the bread, which is a symbol of rebellion and the fall, is cut off. And what goes forward, in essence, back to the garden, is the original tree. Okay? And you, you can buy that or not. I, I thought that was a bit of a stretch. But that's what he said. All right. So now we come forward to Pharaoh's dreams. And again, one of the symbols there is bread in the, in the stalks, right? And the other symbol is animals. Let, let's finish up talking about them from an Egyptian point of view. Animals are deities. Pharaoh is a deity. The river is a deity. Grain, so far as I know, is not. So what's grain in there? Labor. Hard work. Because remember, remember the first mention. And, and remember, everybody comes from Noah. Well, in the Egyptian, they have to get the water from the river to where, where it's to, to the field. Hmm? It's not like rain. It doesn't self right. They've got to. It's work. Yeah. Well, and, and not only that, but taking grain and turning it into food is work. And so grain in that sense, certainly it represents sustenance because they're going to eat, but it also represents work or labor. And Egypt is a slave-based economy. Pharaoh ain't out in back of the kitchen grinding wheat, I'll tell you. And Mrs. Pharaoh ain't out in back of the kitchen grinding wheat. That's all done by slaves, yeah. Um... So anyway, from Pharaoh's perspective, you've got a deity that's going south, right? So you have these seven fat cows, which are deities, and they are consumed by seven lean cows, which, whoa, that doesn't look good if a cow is what you're worshiping, right? In other words, the deity is sort of like uh, the Save the Earth movement, you know, I mean, if if your deity is dying on you, it's, it's really not good. And the same thing happens with the grain. And what I'm going to suggest to you is the interpretation of that, and this is me, this isn't Mary Khan, is not only that, but working isn't going to fix it. In other words, if, if the grain represents labor, the hard work, etc., and that doesn't do anything. What's happening is the gods are failing and labor is also failing from the symbols of Egypt's perspective. Okay? From Joseph's perspective, what, is, what, he's say, what it is saying is basically wealth is going to be taken away from you for a period and I will suggest also that the nearness to God is going to be taken away from you for a period. Yeah, I was thinking physical and spiritual. Physical, you're not going to have grain. And spiritual, you're not going to be doing any offerings in Egypt because it's going to be a Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Everybody hear what he said? Yeah. Physically, you're going to have trouble because there's no grain. 
you're not going to be fed. But spiritually, you're not going to be sacrificing while you're in Egypt. And remember, they don't go down to Egypt until after, what, the second year of the famine? So that's when they go to Egypt. But Joseph is seeing this in the context of Abraham's dreams. Because remember, Abraham has been given a promise. And his promise is, your children are going to go down to Egypt. Or it doesn't say Egypt there, but Joseph at this point with his lightning fast mind says, ah, this must be the place we're going down to. Right? And they're going to go down to this place and they're going to be there and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. So what Joseph is seeing is, ah, this is then the thing that is going to kick off the prophecy that was given to great-grandfather Abraham. And I'm the one who has been sent ahead to prepare the way. So to, to wrap this up and go on a break here, the six dreams that Joseph is involved with are all by way of confirming the dreams that were given to Abraham. Okay? So the first set of dreams, as, as you were saying, marks Joseph as you're the one. You're the guy that's going to move this forward. And, and oh, by the way, the blessing given to Joseph is the blessing of Abraham. Okay? That blessing is passed on to Isaac and to Jacob and then to Joseph. Okay? So clearly the first set of dreams is by way of letting everybody know that Joseph is the one. The second set of dreams while he's still in prison, is by way of letting him know that things are moving in the direction they're supposed to go. Everything's on track. And when it comes time for you to do your thing, that will happen. And then, of course, the third set of dreams is simply confirmation. And, oh, by the way, we're going to put you as second in command in Egypt here. And short-term, the first dream that you had is going to be fulfilled in your brothers and your father because his mother isn't there. Remember, his mother's dead. Mother didn't survive the birth of Benjamin. So at at the time he got his first two dreams, she's gone. Yet she's mentioned in the dream when when Jacob gives the interpretation. So, what I'm suggesting to you is that all of these dreams are of a piece, in a sequence, and they are all about the same subject. Yeah? The cutting off of the bread in, uh, this is according to Khan now, and, and I like part of it, and I'm not so sure about the other part, which is to say, at some point, we are going back to Eden in which case we will no longer have to eat bread by the sweat of our brow. Because, remember, started off with eating bread by the sweat of your brow came immediately after eating the forbidden fruit. And what the dream with the sommelier and the baker is, that's going to be over also.